thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, this week the Naked Scientist's Guide to Surviving and Thriving at Christmas, including our top scientifically tested tips for cooking turkey and making the best roast potatoes. Plus a healthy helping of rather crappy Christmas cracker jokes, how to avoid a festive family feud, and can Christmas pudding get you drunk? I'm Katie Haler. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, to kick off, for the gadget-minded among you, Izzy Clark has got a few gifts up her sleeve that might help to take the stress out of Christmas and the New Year. Izzy, what do you think would be worth a look at this year? One device I found, which is a little bit different from, you know, your iPads and any other tablets, is a smart notebook. It looks like a normal notebook, but actually it's got this digital paper-like screen, you write on it, and it's attached to all of your cloud services so if you want to jot down a list or or a little reminder or perhaps you work in the arts and it's quite creative and sketches it automatically sends anything you've written onto one of these cloud services but bizarrely to clear your notes there's one model which you put in the microwave and that seems to just erase all of your drawings this is an electronic device that you ding in the microwave Yes, I'm not quite sure what the point of that is. Another one is that you get a drop of water and you rub it across the surface. That could get a bit confusing if you sort of accidentally pick up a tablet thinking it's your smart notebook, put some water on it. I don't think that could be the uh, best direction friend to take of mine's things. child dropped her telephone down the toilet. I think that, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing happens, doesn't it? You don't need a drop of water to erase it, you just put it in the loo don't know why you wouldn't just use a normal notebook to be honest maybe people like to have everything on all their multiple devices it does sound like a technology in search of a function if i'm honest are you going to get one i'm not convinced to be honest chris (laughs) i just quite like collecting notebooks i use half of them but you know new year new notebooks what's not to love without sounding super old-fashioned there is something quite nice about just writing stuff down with a pen yeah, but then what if you're one of those people that, oh, I wrote it down on this scrap of paper, where have I put it? Oh, oh at least it's in the, in the cloud. <laughs> and this might be one for perhaps the day after Christmas, maybe Boxing Day, maybe New Year's Day. This is a portable breathalyzer. It's a breathalyzer that goes on a keyring. What it does, it's this little digital alcohol sensor. It's got a folding tube and optional mouthpieces, maybe in case you want to check grandma and uncle are okay to sort of get home. <laughs> but of course, on the continent, in France, it, it's compulsory to have a breathalyzer in your car, isn't it? You're not allowed to drive without one. It's interesting that you know clearly people do really realise the benefit of having access to something like that because you know you reach for your car keys but why not 
put something on your car key ring that will remind you, well, have you been drinking? Maybe you should check before you get behind the wheel. How effective are they, though? From all of the reviews on it, actually, people seem very happy with this. It makes sense now that quite a few of the comments were from European users. We've actually got a breathalyzer here in the studio that we're going to be putting to use a little bit later on. (laughs) Thank you very much, Izzy, for giving us the tech yeses versus tech noes for Christmas and the new year. Will you be buying any of these products yourself? To be honest, I think the breathalyzer one has caught my eye just purely because it's better to be safe, right? Better safe than sorry. Couldn't agree more. Now, Christmas dinner is a really big job, isn't it? So we'd better get our turkeys into the oven. And turkey, of course, it's a Christmas staple for the dinner table. But how much do you know about these delicious creatures that we all go munching through every year? Katie has been speaking to turkey expert Marcus Bradford about how best to cook one and also looking into what they get up to before they end up on your dinner plate. And while we listen to this, Katie, we do need your help because in the name of science, we need you to tuck into an entire Christmas pudding. Could you do that? We've got a whole plate full of Christmas pudding here. You, all, you, all of yes, it? Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> have I you can, had lunch? Oh, I, ha- I mean, I'm quite a greedy person. Are you hungry? I Good. can give it a go. Excellent. OK, well, while we listen to this, <laughs> okay. here it comes. Excellent. Oh. It's been nicely cooked, fresh for you. Well, thank you very much. And this one, it's a very boozy one, very classy indeed. Have a sniff of that. Isn't that great? You really can smell the booze coming okay, off of so that. OK, so if you could just start tucking in, that would be, that'd be great. Enjoy. <laughs> Turkeys. <laughs> An import from the North American continent, the story goes that these wildfowl made their way over to the UK in the 1500s and started to compete with goose and other meats for a place at our Christmas dinner tables. Apparently, Henry VIII was rather a fan, but perhaps this isn't surprising as, rumour has it, he did like a feast or two. But before they become oven-ready, as it were, what do turkeys actually get up to? Are they as dumb and... I'm saying it, as dry as some of us think. I went to meet turkey expert Marcus Bradford from the Gog Farm Shop in Cambridgeshire to find out. An average day uh, for our turkeys, we wake up in the woods, have a mooch around, and they love looking for grubs. They'll eat pretty much anything they can see. They love picking at anything different. So we put CDs in their pen. They like the lights reflecting on stuff, and like little bottle tops are really good because they'll keep pecking at them. So things to keep them uh, entertained. As it gets dark, they'll go to roost, either on the ground or on the low branches and trees. They can get quite high if they want to. Yeah, and then they'll wake up at dawn. Same again. So it doesn't sound like they have an awful lot on their plates, and perhaps they're not quite as mean or ugly as they seem. A lot of people don't like turkeys because they think they're ugly. They're related to the vulture, so they've got that kind of hooked beak and some kind of pretty big talons and they can look quite scary or mean they're lovely i mean they will peck you but not in a vicious way they sound quite curious they're very curious but they're not vicious or malicious in any way if you drive the car into the pen they'll um jump in the car they'll jump in the front seat <laughs> and they um they're also beautiful a lot of people think they're really ugly. yes they are a lot of people think they're ugly but they have this funny little snood around their neck which okay that is a little bit gross but the rest of them are beautiful the bronze turkeys particularly have a, a really beautiful iridescence being a flock bird they're pretty sociable as marcus explained you don't often find one turkey without some others we were watching the grand prix and a turkey uh, came into the porch of the house which was pretty bad because we know that they never never have one escape on its own yeah, so we had about a thousand turkeys all over the farm. Yeah, and because they're quite acquisitive, they go and see movement. They attracted to movement, attracted to noise. So they walked up to the road to see what was going on. So we had about two hundred turkeys, but they weren't—they're not stupid enough to walk onto the road. So they all just in a line, 
just stood there on the A thirteen oh seven, just looking, uh, <laughs> just looking at what was going. So we had, fortunately, we have some pretty clever dogs, and uh, we stopped watching the Grand Prix, ran up there, and, and you know, shoot them all back. That must have been a pretty odd sight for passers-by. But back before the days of mass transport, how exactly did farmers get a whole host of turkeys to market? The Norfolk turkeys would be walked overland, and because 1700s, 1800s, the roads obviously wouldn't have been busy, but also fields weren't divided up as much. So it would have been pretty easy to just to, to walk a flock of you know however many hundreds of turkeys across land kind of common land and then they would walk and they would feed off the stubble and they would that's when they'd eat any dropped grain and they'd eat little they'd be foraging and stuff you can't walk them too quickly because if you walk them too quickly they'll be too lean uh, ah not so enough you, dinner yes yeah, so come need, christmas day so you need to have enough fat on them so you have to walk them at the right speed so nice and you, know, you obviously don't wear them out because they'll get tired and you, they'll lag behind. So you have to walk just so they, they can kind of casually walk and eat enough food to, to put on the weight so they're ready by the time they get to London. And finally, when these birds are oven ready, any tips for cooking? So turkey isn't dry. Badly cooked turkey is dry in the same way badly baked cakes are dry. So if you do it properly, none of this night before cooking. A four kilo or five kilo turkey is two hours in the oven. Even a, even a nine kilo turkey would be three hours in the oven. Cook it to 65 degrees, let it rest for a good hour. It will not go cold. Supermarket turkeys don't tend to have be really in the best conditions. They're a little bit more susceptible to disease or problems. So it's best to cook those turkeys to 80 degrees. Cook a turkey to 80 degrees, taste dry. And it takes ages to cook them to that, that temperature. Also, don't cover it in foil. If you put it in foil... Uh, oh, no. Uh, yeah, no, 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 no. I've been no. cooking turkey wrong. You've been <gasps> cooking, everyone's been cooking turkey wrong. If you, put, if you put it foil over it, it will steam, and it will go all soggy and horrible. So no foil, just two hours, done. Let it rest. Marcus Bradford. Now, that is amazing. I think I've learned more in the last five minutes about turkeys and how to cook them than I had ever in my lifetime ever had turkey hot dinners. Now here's a very quick update on our Naked Scientists fundraising campaign. We spend about £150,000 every year making the Naked Scientists and we're asking you to help us to raise a third of that to keep the show on the road. Now what's extraordinary is that we've raised nearly 20% of our total but we've done that with the help of just 1% of you. Now, we know that some of you are of limited means and can't afford to help us, but we would like to appeal to those who can to consider what we do for you and what we give you as high-quality programming that we make with enormous love and effort and energy every week. Do please consider helping us by going to nakedscientist.com forward slash donate so we can afford to keep this show on the road and making great programmes for you in 2019. nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. Please consider giving us £10 for Christmas. On the way, can Christmas pudding get you drunk? I've been tucking in to find out. Well, our turkey is in the oven. We've also heard now how to cook it properly. So let's look at one of the other trappings of Christmas, and that's Christmas trees. They're interesting plants because they are evergreen. So let's find out a bit more about them from Beverly Glover. She's the director of Cambridge University's Botanic Gardens. So, Beverly, first of all, what, what do we actually mean by the word evergreen? Are, are things that are evergreen really always green? Well, they do keep their leaves all year round, Chris. So that's what we mean. They might drop a leaf off from time to time when that leaf's old and past its lifespan, but they'll always be green leaves photosynthesising on that tree. And how did the two different types of, of tree come about, the ones that do drop their leaves and the ones that don't? Well, actually, I think there are three different types of trees because there are two different types of being evergreen. 
So if you start at the tropics and think about trees there, they're evergreen. They can photosynthesise all year round. There's always lots of sun. It's warm. Everything's great. As you move north in the northern hemisphere or south in the southern hemisphere, you reach an area like Britain where it's a bit cold and miserable in the winter. You're not going to get much photosynthesis done. There's not much light. And your leaves become a big risk because if it's windy, they create a big surface area. And so having a deciduous habit where you drop those leaves starts to become evolutionarily sensible. It's a good adaptation to survive the winter by dropping your leaves and regrowing them in the spring. But if you carry on north in the northern hemisphere or south in the southern hemisphere, you reach a point where the growing season is so short that actually regrowing new leaves each spring in order to photosynthesise wouldn't make sense. And there's an added double whammy in there, which is that the soil temperature is so cold that there's not much fungus around, it's hard for leaves to break down, and there's not much mineral nutrient available in the soil. And so for those trees, there really isn't time and energy and resource to build new leaves each year. And so they have to go back to the evergreen habit that the tropical trees had. So which came first then in in evolution? Did the trees that had leaves all year round come first, and then they turned into evergreens over evolutionary time? Or were there evergreen-type plants first, and they turned into deciduous trees? That's a difficult question um, because what we now see as trees aren't the first trees that we would have seen in evolutionary time. So ferns um, and some plants called lycophytes, which are now just little tiny things, 30, 40 centimetres tall, used to be the, the trees that we had before we had the current seed plants. And those trees would have been evergreen. They were mostly tropical. And then as the trees started to spread out in the Permian into colder and drier areas, then they started to, to form these deciduous habits. And then again, the new evergreen forms evolved. What's interesting, though, is that the trees that do drop leaves tend to have big flat leaves, whereas the evergreens, like Christmas trees, have gone for needles. So are needles effectively just modified leaves? And if so, why are they like that? Yeah, so that's exactly what needles are. And they definitely evolve at a point in evolutionary history where the world gets colder and drier. So the needle form is about protecting yourself against two things. One against um, a big surface area that the winds can, can blow through and potentially pull the whole tree over. Uh, but secondly, against water loss. So you're minimising the surface area of the leaf. Um, the stomata, the pores through which the plant breathes and loses water, are held in channels usually along the needles. And so they're sort of below the, the level of the leaf surface. And that reduces the amount of water that's sucked out of them. So it's all an adaptation to retain water um, and to not get blown over in a cold, dry habitat. And do the plants do anything else to tolerate extremes of temperature? Because a lot of these, these evergreens grow in places, as you pointed out, where it's really, really cold for part of the year. Yeah, so lots of plants have different antifreeze type defences. They'll have cold tolerant proteins that they express when um, the temperature is particularly cold. That changes the uh, osmotic potential in the, the vacuole. So that's the big sack of liquid in the middle of a plant cell. Plant cells are very different from an animal cell in having a big bag of water sitting in the middle. Um, and if you change what you put in there, you can change the temperature which it'll freeze. They also have things like waxes on the surfaces which give them an added layer of protection against cold and against drying out. So they've got lots of different things going on at different levels. Other festive plants for a second, Beverly. So things like holly and that kind of thing. Tell us a bit about them. Well, holly's a great one because obviously after Christmas lunch you need to get out in the garden, get some fresh air and everybody likes a bit of science after lunch. In your house perhaps. (laughs) Our lot want to watch the Queen and pass out. Surely everyone wants to do some experiments after lunch. Um, If you go find a nice holly bush in the garden and you can set everybody in the family a challenge, count the number of spikes per leaf, um, one foot off the ground, two feet off the ground, three feet off the ground, you should find statistically significant reduction in spike number per leaf as you go up the plant, which of course is about who's eating those plants. It's an anti-herbivore defence designed to protect the plant against 
rabbits, small deer, grazers at sort of low level. Really? <laughs> I'm not having you on at all. Go and try it. How does the plant know how high up each of the leaves is? Oh, well, that's very clever. And it's not just needles. Arctic willow, for instance, puts um, defensive chemicals in its bark just up to the height an arctic hare can reach if it stands on its back legs and no higher. But obviously the part of the plant that is at browsing height when it's growing is quite different than when it's a big mature tree. So is that a, an acquired thing as it gets bigger? It starts to put more needles lower down and fewer higher up? It's quite a long-lived tree, Holly, so it's got time to sort of acclimate as it ages and there's an element of this which we think is induced in response to where it's been eaten most during its lifetime. But part of it seems to be part of the basic growing design too. So it's quite literally once bitten, twice shy or twice spiky. <laughs> exactly. Bet you don't know, Chris, that Holly's one of those plants that uh, like animals, comes in male plants and female plants, whereas most plants, of course, are both. And so if you've got a holly in your garden that never makes berries, it's probably because it's a boy. Ah, is that the only way to tell? You can look at the flowers if you know what you're looking for. It's not difficult. You should see four stamens on a male and just one stigma on a female. Um, But the best bet is berries. So why has it done that then? Well, it's a bit of an evolutionary dead end, we think. Uh, About 4% of flowering plants go down this route. 96% go for the sensible hermaphrodite approach to life. We think they're doing it as an extreme adaptation to prevent self-pollination, self-fertilisation. It's hard for a plant to avoid getting its own pollen on its own stigmas in the flower. This makes absolutely sure you don't. But of course, it also means unless there's another one of you in the same place, then you're not going to reproduce. And since they can't move around, they're reliant on somebody else carrying that pollen for them. That's quite a risky strategy. It is. And higher up in some trees, especially around here, I've seen quite a lot of it, is mistletoe. How did that get there and what's special about mistletoe? It's a hemiparasite, so it does do some photosynthesis, but it doesn't connect into the soil at all. So it gets all its nitrogen, phosphorus from the the tree that it's, it's plumbed into. Too much of it, of course, will weaken a tree over time. And it produces those berries at this time of year. And in this country, in the UK, mistletoe is quite an interesting example of climate change because it didn't used to come very far north. It was always a southern England habitat only. And say here in Cambridgeshire, we wouldn't have seen mistletoe 40 years ago. But the berries are spread by blackcaps, bird that used to not overwinter in the UK, go south to Spain and North Africa for the winter. Now the blackcaps are overwintering. They're eating the berries, spreading them around, and the plant is steadily spreading north across the country with the blackcaps. So why did people decide they needed to kiss under it? (laughs) Well, that's not clear. I mean, it's full of some pretty nasty toxins that'll stop your heart quite quickly. So maybe there's a sinister side effect there. Kiss of death. (laughs) Yeah, that kind of thing. (laughs) Somebody you don't really fancy, but feel you have to kiss. (laughs) No comment, Beverly. (laughs) Beverly Glover from Cambridge University's Botanic Garden. Thank you very much. And also with us in the studio is clinical psychologist Caitlin Hitchcock from Cambridge University immunologist by day and amateur wine enthusiast by evening, Claire Bryant, also from Cambridge University, and bioinformatician slash science musician, Rishi Nag from the Wellcome Genome Campus. Before we get chatting to everybody else, Eva is just coming into the studio with two beautiful smelling plates of roast potatoes. Now, there are two... <laughs> Lovely. Chris is, Chris is getting very excited about this. Mm. Eva, come and sit down. Everybody in front of you, there are two plates of roast potatoes. One has been made by Eva and are insubstantial. One has been made by Katie, me. Eva's made hers with olive oil. I've made mine with goose fat. Question is, which one do you prefer and which one do you think is which? Beverly, you're a vegetarian, so I think you might want to sit this one out. <laughs> There are forks in the middle. Please, if you're feeling brave enough, have a taste. 
So we don't know whose is whose yet. You, you, this is a blind tasting. Thank you, Rishi. Mm. Well, before we get the tastiness verdict, here's how we made them. Roast potatoes. Everybody knows they are a staple at Christmas dinner. Everyone also knows that goose fat will trump olive oil. It's not the first time I've made roast potatoes and it's not going to be the first time I've made the best roast potatoes. So sorry, Katie, but I don't know how much luck you're going to have here. Well, let's see, shall we? Step one, peel the potatoes. Step two, chop them into roughly similar sized pieces. And I decided to rinse the chopped potatoes to get rid of any excess starch. Step three, heat up the water with the potatoes in to boiling and leave for about 10 minutes. I added a rather over generous amount of salt as well. Now, for me, it was time to heat up the goose fat. It looks pretty gross, to be honest. Right, my two trays are coated. They are going in the oven, which has been preheated to 200 degrees. But for me, none of this preheating the fat nonsense. Step four, drain the parboiled potatoes and then slather in olive oil. Well, I disagree about the olive oil, but step five was to put those potatoes in the oven and roast for at least 20 minutes. Oh, listen to that. That's lovely. Claire, you're looking quite quiet in the corner. She's eating. (laughs) I am eating, yes. Which one do you think you have eaten? I think the one with rosemary is the one with goose fat and the one with garlic is the one with olive oil. And which one do you prefer? I like both of them. They're just different. Oh, Sorry. (laughs) Caitlin, have you partaken in any roasties? I have. I had a try of each. Um, And I would have to say I prefer the olive oil. I would say they're the ones on the left with the garlic. Rishi, have you been brave enough to try these roast potatoes? I've uh, taken one off each plate. I'm going to go with the ones on my left, which are the non-olive oils ones as my favourite. I'll give you a vote for that too. I I love those ones. And I think those are the goose fat ones. They are definitely superior. Oh, marvellous. Thanks, Chris. Eva, put us out of our misery. Which is which? Uh, So mine are the ones with olive oil and they've got garlic on them and they're the ones on the left. And I do think they're better personally. The goose fat is a bit of a strong flavour for me. But there you go. So some people preferred yours, some people preferred mine. But everyone accurately told them apart. Yes, that's true. Everyone did guess correctly which is which, which goes to show the flavour of the fat of each of them must be quite strong. We had a little conversation about this. Well, we had an argument about it in the office, let's be honest. I added salt to my water when I was parboiling the potatoes. And I don't really know why, to be honest. I wonder if it's a bit of a, a bit of a mythical thing. I've been told that this is something that's good to do. Is there any science behind it? To be honest, some people say you should add salt to water when you're boiling vegetables and maybe there's something to do with flavour in there. But with roast potatoes, you're going to season loads of them afterwards. And actually, one of the other reasons people think you should add salt to, to water when you're boiling things is it actually raises the temperature at which water boils. So that means that when the water is boiling away really hard with your potatoes in there, it's actually boiling at a higher temperature. So the idea is that if you add the salt, then the potatoes or whatever vegetable will cook faster because the water's hotter. 
but it's only a two degree difference. I don't know what that works out mathematically, but it's not going to be that much quicker, is it? So I never bother putting salt in with mine. So unless you have to make the speediest dinner imaginable, maybe there's not much point. Exactly. That's that's my opinion anyway. Now, we use different oils. I still maintain that goose fat tastes better, but they have different smoking temperatures, don't they? As I understand it, goose fat has a bit of a higher temperature at which it'll smoke compared to virgin olive oil, which is what you used. Does this have any scientific relevance when it comes to making roast potatoes? Well, people tend to say that when you're roasting something, you want to use a high temperature. And that means you want to use an oil that's able to cope with a high temperature without smoking and fanning up your oven. This is because you want really crispy, delicious, golden brown roast potatoes, right? Not mash. Exactly. And so with the goose fat having a higher temperature, that means that you should be able to turn your oven on a little bit higher, a little bit hotter, which will give you perhaps a more crispy outside. Whereas olive oil, if you have it at that same temperature, it's going to start smoking a little bit and maybe change the flavour as well as not giving you the nice crispy coating. Maybe it'll mess your oven up as well. Chris, are you convinced us of the science of our roast potatoes? Yeah, it's also not so good to to have certain oils at very high temperature either, is it? Because then you actually begin to to damage the integrity of the oil. And olive oil is is very good for you when taken as raw virgin olive oil. But when you bake with it, I think it becomes potentially quite bad for you because it oxidises. And uh, so it's actually better to to cook in lard, I think. (laughs) So are you saying scientifically... I win. Well, we were doing a taste test rather than a scientific credibility <laughs> test. But, um, I, I mean, flavour-wise, I, I personally really like very fluffy, very bad-for-you tasting potatoes because I don't do it very often. They were both really nice, but, but for me, the goose fat ones were, were nicer. But um, that wasn't equaled by or agreed on by everyone here, was it? No. So I mean, OK, well, let's call it a tie. That's fair. That's Christmassy. Eva, thank you very much. And thank you for bringing the roast potatoes. I'm going to try and not um, <laughs> drool through the rest of the programme. And we let you have one eventually, Beverly, once you knew what you could eat. It was great. Mm. Really good. <laughs> the Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Still to come, will your guests notice if you buy them cheap plonk rather than the expensive stuff? We have done the public test to find out. But first, we've had the presents, the turkey, the roast potatoes. Now, I rather fancy a cracker, don't you, Chris? We've got some... I'm told they're of pretty poor quality, so apologies. Oh, oh, thanks. I'm pushing the boat out for me. (laughs) Merry Christmas, Chris. I think we should all try one. Why not? There's six crackers. Beverly, why don't you open them up? We'll pass them around and see how bad these crackers really are. Right, Okay. here we go. Right, we all have to try and somehow do this. Are we going to try this at the same time? Yeah, okay. Three, two, one. one. Go on, then. (laughs) Well, they're certainly explosive, not. Okay, Rishi, this is for you, right? So how many chimneys does Father Christmas go down? I have not a clue there. Stacks. Oh, dear. That was quite good, actually. Mine's really bad. Caitlin? Knock, knock. Who's there? Mary. Mary who? Merry Christmas. (laughs) Classic. Predictable. Beverly? Why does Father Christmas go down the chimney? I don't know. Why does Father Christmas go down the chimney? Because it suits him. (laughs) That is terrible. That is horrible. That is awful. Okay, well, we've been talking about food, so here's a foodie one. What do snowmen eat for lunch? Claire, I'm directing this one at you. 
I've no idea. Go what does Snowman eat for lunch? Ice Krispies. Icebergers. Oh, oh close. Very good. <laughs> so what makes these Christmas cracker jokes quite so awful? Naked scientist Georgia Mills has popped in to the studio to tell us. Hello, Georgia. Merry Christmas. First up, what actually makes something a joke? Jokes actually are kind of hard to nail down because they're all so different, but there are some things that seem to be uh, constant across jokes. So uh, a linguist, Robert Hetron, gave this definition. So it's a joke is a short, humorous we'll see about that, piece of oral literature in which the funniness culminates in the final sentence called the punchline. In fact, the main condition is that the tension should reach its highest level at the very end. So you always have this kind of setup and a payoff in a joke. There's usually this punchline, especially the written ones. And the other thing that seems to be true across all jokes is that they're false. They're never true statements. But apart from that, kind of anything goes. Okay, so you're setting a situation up that defies your expectations. It's not actually true and hilarity or not ensues. When did we start telling jokes? It's not clear when we did because they've never been what's considered the height of culture, I guess. So we haven't like made <laughs> made good records of when jokes began. But the, the oldest one people have found so far is from 1900 BC. We'll see if it, if it gets a laugh from the table. The joke goes, something which has never occurred since time immemorial. A young woman did not fart in her husband's lap. I read it getting a lot of blank stares. So that's from a Sumerian proverb collection. Sumeria is now what southern Iraq is. And it seems to be some kind of joke about farting, which I think has pretty much survived until now. We, we also find toilet humour very funny. The oldest British joke on record, we'll see if this is too dirty. Yeah, that's more cacker joke than cracker joke, that one. <laughs> oh dear, Chris. <laughs> The oldest British joke is from about a thousand years ago and it is what hangs at a man's thigh and wants to poke the hole that it's often poked before? I don't know. The answer is, of course, a key. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So I think what you have here is that jokes have, uh, since the very beginning, been a bit naughty, really. But we think that we started telling jokes because they kind of, they help people bond together. They reduce stress and anxiety and they yet they unify people. They help us be more social. Okay, so whether or not you thought those jokes were funny, um, I guess is open to interpretation. Are there any objectively funny jokes? What makes something funny? I think any comedian will tell you that there are no objectively funny jokes. If there were, that their jobs would be much easier. But there are, there are a lot of people trying to get to the bottom of what actually makes something funny. And uh, it's kind of a hard thing to break down. The oldest theory of humour is the superiority theory. If a joke makes you feel superior to a group of people, it will be more funny. And if you think about a lot of jokes, they often make fun of uh, neighbouring countries or a type of person, like a blonde, a lawyer, a priest. And often they involve some kind of serious misfortune fortunes so if you the listener of the joke feel superior to that group of people it makes you feel sort of happy and and laugh and humorous that's not very nice most jokes if you look at them involve something really bad happening to someone another theory is the relief theory which um, freud had something to do with and this is the idea that humor comes from like relieving tension Uh, so you could interpret this as sort of the tension is you not understanding where the joke is going and then the punchline is resolving that tension and lots of jokes also deal with very sort of serious issues like taboos and death and so it's kind of a safe environment to hear about some nasty things and that causes tension and then the tension is relieved by it being a joke. And if we go back to the jokes that we heard in these crackers, I mean, pretty much everyone groaned. 
What makes some jokes so bad? The thing about cracker jokes, they've got to be clean. You can't get any dirty innuendos or, or sort of violent imagery. Yeah, they have to be family friendly, right? Which often means you can't say some of the things that we naturally find quite funny. We've always found toilet humour quite amusing. Um, so they usually rely on, on things like a play on words or a pun. And this uh, fits in with another theory of humour, which is called the incongruity theory, which is the idea that we find a mismatch between our expectations and reality funny. But the thing about cracker jokes is they're actually not meant to be good. They're, they're written to be bad because they kind of unite us all with anger against the person who wrote the cracker joke. <laughs> so they're actually a really good sort of like social glue around the table because if they're kind of good, some of you might find them funny, some of you might find them bad. But if they're intentionally bad... A, it's easier to write them, and B, you have this fun part of Christmas where you're all making fun of this poor person. Gotta ask, favourite joke? Seeing as I'm talking about what makes a joke a joke, what's the difference between a good joke and a bad joke timing? (laughs) (laughs) Beverly's raising her hand. Can you beat that? Bit of physics. Did you hear the one about the photon who checked into the hotel? The concierge asked him if he could handle his luggage, and the photon said, no, I'm travelling light. That is an excellent joke. <laughs> Rishi, you must sing in Scientist. You must have uh, you must have some gags. I should only point out I also got the Icebergers joke like five minutes late. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, it was worth investing in these crackers then. <laughs> well, Georgia, thank you very much. Now, for many of us, Christmas really is the most wonderful time of the year. But being in a confined space with your family for days on end can occasionally lead to bust-ups. And luckily, here to help us navigate the stormy seas of festive family relationships is Cambridge University clinical psychologist Caitlin Hitchcock. Merry Christmas. Now, do more arguments really happen at Christmas or is this just a myth? Well, Christmas can be associated with a number of different things that do actually result in heightened arguments. So, for example, as you mentioned, we spend a lot of time with people that we may not see much of during the year. So there can be tensions that have been carried and that have been successfully avoided during the year, which are harder to um, do away with when we're in close spaces. But people also tend to drink alcohol and things a bit more, which can reduce our inhibitions. I mean, we're more likely to say things that perhaps we should leave alone. That's very tactfully put, I think. Are there any surefire ways to avoid those Christmas arguments? Well, I mentioned a couple of things before that um, might make you more likely to argue. So, for example, alcohol uh, can be something that might make each and every one of us say things that, again, we might usually leave alone. Are you going to say we have to lay off the Christmas booze? Not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that you need to be aware of what your triggers are. So, for example, if you know that politics, religion, some of those taboo topics that were the subject of the jokes we were talking about earlier, some of these things might be likely to set off an argument. Perhaps you might want to think of that. Also, recognising that if you get into certain sorts of conversations with people, for example, around the cleaning up or an aunt asking when you're going to bring someone special home for Christmas, good to know if that's something that's going to set you off to have a plan for how you might respond to that. Okay, so along a similar line then, if these things do arise, if you haven't done the washing up, you said you were going to, your parents get annoyed, for instance, any tips on resolving conflict? Well, the first thing that you should perhaps keep in mind is to respond to the situation rather than just react. So if we react in the moment, it's usually based on our emotional response, which can tend to lead to over-exaggerated responses or, again, emotional responses. Um, Whereas if you take a moment uh, to collect yourself and then respond to the situation at hand, you're more likely to kick your executive function back into gear 
inhibit some of those things that perhaps might need to be uh, left alone and respond in a way that's more appropriate. And, uh, and, and do you do this with a plum in your house? Caitlin, or do you fall into all the same traps? <laughs> I think it's important to keep in mind that nobody's perfect. We're human. We argue. We have conflict. To have conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's how we go about resolving it. In fact, there is research that demonstrates that in relationships, a conflict can actually make your relationship stronger if you're able to resolve that conflict. What about, though, so you've, you've got the rallies round and it reaches that time of day when, quite frankly, you've had enough of them. How do you diplomatically get rid of them? How do you kick people out? Uh, well, I think if you're of the mindset that your family might be one of those families that sticks around a bit long, see if you can set an expectation earlier so that people know that perhaps... Well, turn the lights off, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> you can start before people even get there by letting them know in advance what time you'll be hosting to. Um, you can try diplomatic responses such as this, I'm going to start cleaning up, or it's getting late, I'm feeling a bit tired, everyone must be a bit worn out from the day. <laughs> this is an over-exaggerated... <gasps> Gosh, is that the time? Yeah. Looking at uh, your watch. And that does tend to be the sorts of things you... I think we can all relate to having dad or granddad say, all right, I'm all going to bed. Um, being more serious for a second, though, um, when we get to times of the year when everyone's celebrating, everyone appears to be having fun. If you're not one of them, it can be quite isolating, can't it? So what what should you do if you find yourself in that position so you don't end up sort of succumbing to, to the woes of, oh dear, I feel a bit down because, you know, everyone's out having fun and I'm not? Yeah, that's a really important thing to point out, that Christmas isn't always a fun and fantastic time of year. And in fact, we can place a lot of pressure on ourselves. And we see a lot of that in advertisements and things to be um, able to have the perfect Christmas. So if you are not spending time with people this year, make sure that you have a plan. It doesn't need to be a lonely time of year. There are lots of uh, charities and things where you can go and get involved and connect with other people. Uh, you might like to still, if there are people you'd like to connect with, send Christmas cards or messages or phone calls if you're away from loved ones. If that's not you and you're going to be spending Christmas by yourself, it's important to have a plan. So, for example, know what you're going to do for the day. Will you cook yourself a nice meal? Perhaps plan a film that you'd watch just to make sure that you don't end up not having an idea of what you'd like to do on the day because that can sometimes be the loneliest. And um, memory of uh, biggest Christmas row or, or disaster from yourself? Mine uh, all tend to be over games that we seem to play and someone usually flips the Monopoly board or something like that on Christmas afternoon. Always seems to be after lunch. Do you have any cheaters? Because this is very controversial. If there's one person that cheats in Monopoly, other board games are available. That is a biggie in my house. Yeah, it's always hard to prove that somebody's cheating though, isn't it? And that always seems to be the point of contention in terms of whether or not someone is cheating is what actually causes the conflict. Caitlin, thanks very much. We'll let you go home and, uh, and prepare for your Christmas and, and not having a row. But, uh... <laughs> Thank you. I'll try to avoid sticking my hand in the bank this year. <laughs> <laughs> so we've done Christmas dinner and we're feeling all very full and I think it's time for a drink. So who better to guide us through picking some plonk than Claire Bryant? She's an immunologist professionally, um, but she's also an authority on wine. An amateur drinker, you describe yourself as, Claire. Yeah, I've heard that one before. Uh, no, I'm only kidding. But um, what's going to be on your Christmas table wine-wise this year? So for myself, I'm a big fan of fizz at Christmas. So I will be drinking a bottle of Cornish fizz because English sparkling wines are wonderful. And I think at the moment they outrank any sparkling wine from anywhere else in the world. And then with my turkey, actually I'm not having turkey, I'm having goose. I will be having a very nice bottle of Burgundy. So Burgundy is made from Pinot Noir, so very, very nice red wine. 
Actually, making it to a pudding wine is a bit of an ordeal for me because by that point I'm half asleep. But if I make it to the point of having a pudding wine, I will probably have a sweet German Riesling or possibly a sweet Muscat from France, which has a nice sort of citrusy orange flavour and goes very well with Christmas pudding. Now, when planning a wine for a dish, how should one approach that? Well, for red meat, you would normally have red wine. For white meats, it's debatable. Sometimes a light red wine, so Burgundies can be relatively light. For example, Pinot Noirs in general come in sort of light to medium weight. For vegetarian dishes, you can have a choice of anything, actually. So if it's a robust vegetarian dish, very cheesy, then you probably go for a red wine. Something from the Rhone Valley would be nice. For a lighter dish, you might want to go for a Riesling, for example. There are various rules, but rules are there to be broken. You're picking all old world stuff, though, largely. Is that, is that one of your penchants? You're suing Australia, South Africa... No, not at all. Actually, I think some of the uh, South African wines are absolutely fantastic at the moment and really good value for money. And Californian wines are, are really beautiful, but uh, some of them are a tad overpriced for my for my liking. I've recently also been to Australia for a couple of weeks and had some of the most fantastic wines there as well. So I will drink wine from anywhere as so long as it's good. But the best quest of all is trying to find a good value wine for for money and that's the biggest challenge actually south africa probably ticks the box there at the moment it's really interesting you brought up cost because you can pay a lot for wine but equally you can pay not very much for wine now is it a given that if you buy something really expensive you are going to taste the difference or not it depends first of all the actual cost of wine with respect to buying a bottle is there a variety of very fixed costs so it's the cost of the bottle the cost of the cork cost of the vat and cost of the import duty which is what we pay in the UK so if you drink a five pound bottle of wine you're probably spending about 50p on the wine inside whereas if you buy a 10 pound bottle of wine you're getting considerably more wine for your money so you will see an escalation in quality accordingly then it's about winemaker reputation so certain winemakers and this is particularly true in France but it's also true in Australia and California as well it's sold on the name Okay, now there's elements to that that are useful because a good winemaker will make a consistently good wine, but then a good winemaker will only have a limited amount of wine to sell, so it's supply and demand. So there are a variety of factors involved, but basically you need to be paying at least a tenner to get something halfway decent. So if I gave you a a £5 bottle of wine and a £20 bottle of wine, are you confident you could probably tell the difference? I mean, it's all personal. It all depends whether you like it, and quality is as you perceive it. At the end of the day. So that's my way of saying, if you're going to try it, try that one on me, Chris. I will accept it if I get caught out. <laughs> well, we did do the test. Uh, we asked Eva to go out into Cambridge armed with two different brands of fizzy wine. And she had a go at trying this on the general public. Let's hear how she got on. The challenge is we've got two bottles of fizzy wine and we'd like you to tell us which you prefer and which you think is more expensive. Three, two, one. Ratio. I'm going to savour it. Very sweet. Kind of small bubbles. Yeah, it's nice. It's not too, it's not too dry. I probably like it a bit drier. But. It's nice. Very sweet. You can kind of taste the bubbles in it. But I like it. Ah. Oh, gosh, I don't know. Is that one worse? It's all right. It could taste the clementine notes in it. That is absolutely disgusting. Which do you prefer? Which had the better taste to you? Oh, I prefer the second one. Mm, I think I prefer the first one. I think the, I like the first one more. first one's definitely the nice one, but I don't know if it's the cheap one or not. It's less aggressive. Definitely the first one. Smoother, kind of more delicate, I think. Finer bubbles. And which do you think is most expensive? Going to say the most expensive with the second one. I'm going to say the same, yeah. 
Usually I find cheaper is sweeter. I think the second one could be the most expensive one. <laughs> I wouldn't say the first one because it tasted drinkable. But the first one, like, would be more expensive one. So, Claire, these are the two wines that we, we took out on the streets. Can you just tell us what they are and what you think of them? Sure. Well, so the one is a champagne, which will be a dry champagne. And I'm just looking to see which grapes were involved. There's a, a, a sort of depth and a complexity to champagne that you don't necessarily get with other wines, but that's not always true. The other bottle is a carver. Um, it's actually a very well-known carver. And it is made uh, in Spain because Spain makes carvers. So in Spain, it's obviously hotter than it is in Champagne. So you get a different complexity to the wine. And that's part of the kind of interesting thing, because actually Champagne and carver are made in a similar way. They're both fermented in the bottle. I would expect my I would prefer the Champagne, but without actually tasting them. I don't know. And both the bottles are empty, Chris. <laughs> oh, dear. That's, what did you pay for those two, Katie? I would guess you probably paid three to four pounds for the maximum for the carver. Just to put this in context, these are 20 centilitre bottles. Yes, these are tiny bottles. So, yeah, probably two to three pounds for the carver and probably four or five pounds for the champagne. Oh, pretty much. It was three pounds for the carver and a tenner for the champagne. Okay. Okay, that doesn't surprise me because the price differential, not least because champagne has champagne on the label. <laughs> so interestingly, nine out of 10 of the people we asked actually preferred the champagne. But it seems people thought we were trying to uh, trick them a little bit as they thought they liked the cheaper one. Actually, they preferred the more expensive one. Yeah, well, I think that's because in wine tests, they're always looking to see if you're going to catch them out. And people like to think that they will like the bargain. But it does show the difference. You know, Champagne is a brand that is a generally a good brand. And I guess that would support the French view that they make the best sparkling wine in the world. Last thing I want to talk about, we've got a bottle here of alcohol-free wine. We can have a try of this. Are you a fan? No. <laughs> <laughs> but but why is that? Why, why are you not fond? Um. I, I think actually it, there is a lot of potential, okay, to make good de-alcohol wines, but apparently it's very expensive to actually take the alcohol out of the wine. So the way you do it is you either pass it through a filter, which then you end up with low alcohol wine as opposed to alcohol free, or you do a distilling process. And the the problem is, I think to actually do that and not affect the flavour of the wine is actually quite challenging. I, I mean, there is something to the alcohol that enhances the taste as well. But, you know, in the long run, there's got to be a lot of potential for, for making de-alcoholised wine. It's just I haven't had one I liked yet. People are thinking about it a lot, especially in this more health-conscious era. And the, the beer guys have, have certainly done a really good job. I think it's just a question of time. For example, there's a big wine house in Spain called Torres, which make actually a very halfway reasonable low-alcohol wine. And there's also probably mileage, um, because some wines are naturally lower in alcohol. So German wines from the Moselle region, for example, are naturally lower in alcohol. So I think it's just a question of time. And it, it's kind of important because some of the big wines from hot countries, uh, for, from Australia, for example, can come in at anything between 15 and 17% alcohol, which is almost the same as sherry and port. And that's, that's a serious amount of alcohol. To it's take really crept up in recent years as well, hasn't it? Is that a reflection on climate and hotter summers? I suspect it is a reflection on global warming and it is going to cause a problem. I'm sorry we don't have anything better to toast you with, but Claire, thank you very much <laughs> for joining us. And uh, do enjoy the alcohol-free wine. Um, what do you think? Any good? Tastes like blackcurrant, Chris. It doesn't do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, it's a no from Claire. Anyway, Claire Bryant from the University of Cambridge, thank you very much. 
Now, from wine back to Christmas pudding, who can't resist an extra large helping? Well, certainly not me. I've been munching away at this Christmas pudding throughout the show. But a lot of booze goes into making a Christmas pudding. I think, if my memory serves me correctly, there's cider in this one. There's port, brandy, cognac. Courvoisier. Courvoisier, yes. 4% apparently, by weight of this one. It's quite a hefty amount of alcohol. So what does this dessert do to your alcohol level? Well, it puts it up quite a bit, apparently. Um, I was looking on the internet at this. There have been a number of investigations into how much your blood alcohol can rise. And allegedly, two big portions of tiramisu is enough to put you over the drink drive limit. A very large helping of sherry trifle allegedly, will do this. And if you have a particularly sweet tooth, 850 liqueurish chocolates would also potentially put you over the drink-driving limit. But that's why we thought we'd ask you to eat that cake, which I must say, I'm not very impressed, Katie. You've only eaten half of the Christmas, a whole Christmas pudding. It is pretty. Um, it serves four, Chris. I mean, I like my food, but that's a bit ridiculous. Um, but potentially, there should be enough in there for you to bust a breathalyzer. You should be over the limit if you eat all that. So you don't reckon eating half of it will have made a difference? Should we find out? Yeah. I just happen to have a handy breathalyzer here. Right. Yeah. I mean, there was a lady about 15, 16 years ago who was stopped by the police because she had been weaving all over the road. She was found to be over the limit on breath alcohol. And her defence in court, which was accepted by the court, was um, I'd had two rather large helpings of, of Christmas cake mm-hmm. and um, it, it was soaked in whiskey. So um, she she was successfully let off and, uh, and said, I take drink driving very seriously and I didn't realise. So Christmas cake can indeed put you over the limit. So be careful. Don't drive home. So this is a mini alcohol breathalyzer for Europe, apparently. So it's a small tube. It looks a little bit like a vial that you might get your blood put into if you're having a blood test, that sort of shape. It's got various, it's got a little scale on the side, the percentage scale. 0, 0.2, 0.5, 0.8%. Um, and I, if I follow the instructions correctly, I push the two ends of the tube by pressing strongly to break the security foil. There we go. Now I need to take a deep breath and exhale into any side of the tube uh, twice for 10 seconds. And then we'll have a little chat because after four minutes, you'll compare the colour change against this colour change on this chart. So I will do the breathing. You're certainly going red. (laughs) (laughs) Keep blowing, keep blowing. (laughs) Okay, we've got to wait four minutes? Four minutes. Okay, right. Well, you wait for four minutes. So I'm going to have a quick chat to Rishi while we let your breathalyzer sample cook (laughs) and you can trough down the rest of your cake. Oh, thanks uh, very much. Just what I want, more Christmas pudding. Waste not, want not, Katie. Well, while you get yourself stuffed, um, let's sit back and uh, we're going to talk to scientist and singer who is uh, Rishi Nag. Now, we first met in 2011 and you were going via the moniker Professor Carmadillo in those days. You now call yourself the singing scientist. So tell us a bit about what you actually do professionally before we come on to the singing. So professionally, I'm uh, working with a, an organisation called the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health. We're about getting standards for big databases of genomics uh, data to be able to talk to each other and take into account security and uh, things like that. So if I've got a whole lot of DNA data, and so have you, we want to be able to share that data between us, but without risk of of breaching confidentiality, breaking anonymity, etc. 
Yeah, that's correct. Making it available for research so researchers can run their algorithms over it, but still preserving the patient's confidential information. So is that largely a computing problem? It's a mixture of both. I mean, on one side, the volume of data provides a computing problem. On the other hand, you've got regulations and things like that. That provides a different kind of problem in terms of you know legal issues around Europe and USA and things like that. When you say it's a, a storage problem, how much information are you trying to store? The paradigm we're using where, say, there were a thousand genomes donated for research is changing where so Genomics England and the NHS are you know, getting 100,000 genomes and so you're storing you know petabytes of data. Every petabyte is a 1,000 big hard disks you'd find in your average family computer. Yeah, and because you're talking about sequencing you know, populations rather than just sort of a selected group of individuals now. Yeah, so how did the singing scientists come along then? I was working in the uh, plant sciences department, uh, you know, a while back. One of the hard-working plants there was something called the Arabidopsis thaliana, and I sort of one day wrote a song comparing it to roses, using it as a metaphor for how, like, scientists are hard-working but not uh, recognised necessarily within society, whereas you get the reality TV stars being like the roses who are not so contributing but but high uh, publicity and things like that. So, and how did that go down? Was that successful? Yeah, that went really well, actually. Uh, <laughs> then I started writing science songs purely for science. And now? So what, what, what does the singing scientist do these days? This year I uh, was offered a grant from uh, the public engagement team at the Wellcome uh, Genome Campus to turn, like what I had was a mismatch of songs from different you know, scientific areas that had been of interest. And one of the comments had been, let's turn this into a story. So I, I came up with uh, the idea of genomics, the musical, and uh, one of the important things when you're doing these science songs on stage is to have videos to ex- help explain what's going on and things. So I had the first live performance of this uh, in November. How did it go down? Really well. I had a bit of trepidation when uh, I saw a large number of like, you know, six to 10 year olds walking in through the room. So I uh, made some last minute adjustments on my slides to sort of include the word poo on them to, <laughs> to make sure they were entertained <laughs> through the 45 minute set. And you're going to do us a song. Yeah. So I, I tried to think back about what was my most wow moment of the year from the sort of the science world. And I think it was the sight of the uh, Tesla going off into space and then these Falcon Heavy rockets, those booster rockets that landed simultaneously. Use that as a framing for this uh, idea of a song on the theme of surviving Christmas. We will hear about that in just a second. How are you getting on, Katie? Have you have you got your breathalyzer result and are you still safe to drive? I am as safe as I could possibly be. Either the test doesn't work or it's made no difference. You haven't eaten enough cake. No, you have to, well, you have to eat another have to one. I'm to try harder. Yeah, if we record the programme again, you see another one. And eventually we'll get a reading. I might be asleep by that point, Chris. <laughs> well, look, I have to say a very big thank you to our guests who were Beverly Glover, Caitlin Hitchcock, Rishi Nag, Marcus Bradford and Claire Bryant. Katie put the whole programme together, thanks to you. And thank you very much to you at home for listening to us this year. We're very much looking forward to your company again in 2019. Have a wonderful Christmas. And Rishi, over to you. Dressed in red, flying through the sky, my presence opens wondrous eyes as they gaze into the night. But I am no Santa Claus, I'm a product of a SpaceX launch, a falcon heavy flying up so bright. 
I'm a Tesla Roadster supercar sent by a man who wants to get to Mars. Driving round really fast, orbiting the sun as my star. As I float around in space, I get hit by cosmic rays. I'm a car; it spoils my paint, but it really would ruin your face if that didn't get you. You would die up here. It's minus one o five, so don't complain. It's cold outside, baby. If you wanna survive, Christmas twenty eighteen. Stay on Earth next to a tree. Just make sure you're not the star man driving me. My launch was meticulously planned, as well as the insight lander, which will show us what's deep down inside of Mars. Curiosity managed to survive a Martian dust storm, planet-sized. Opportunity wasn't quite so hard, so don't send it a Christmas card. Twelve days of Christmas to celebrate, then twelve years to stop climate change, making Christmas 2038 something strange in a different place. Surviving Christmas 18 will seem easy compared to stopping frozen poles turning greasy. If this season's about best of humanity, there's nothing more to be better than for the planety. I'm a Tesla Roadster supercar sent by a man who wants to get to Mars. Driving round really fast, orbiting the sun as my star. As I float around in space, I get hit by cosmic rays. I'm a car; it spoils my paint, but it would really ruin your face if that didn't get you. You'd still die up here. It's minus one o five, so don't complain. It's cold outside, baby. If you wanna survive. Christmas 2018. Stay on Earth next to a tree and just make sure you're not the star man driving me. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that's investing twenty billion pounds in R and D over the next two years, the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities, the nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK.